This morning we're going to spend our time in just two verses, verses 24 and 25. That's 1 Peter chapter 2, 24 and 25. Uh, and as you're turning there, let me ask you, as you're turning there, let me ask you a question. Have you ever considered how sometimes the shortest of sentences, just a few words, can utterly transform our lives? Just a few examples. Will you marry me? Okay, I'm not asking. (laughs) We're having a baby. You've got the job. I'm afraid it's cancer. But surely no sentence is so utterly life-changing as this one. Christ died for you. Just four simple words, but so utterly life-changing once we understand all that it means. But what does it mean to say that Christ died for us? What actually happened at the cross, and how does it really affect our lives? The fact is that so many glorious truths flow out from what Christ did on the cross. But over time, it's so easy, I find it so easy, to stop giving them so much thought, to skirt over the cross in our thinking, to stop meditating on it so frequently precisely because we know the facts so well or because we've boiled it all down to just one or two monochrome sentences like Christ died for me. But as we read through the Bible, we find that God clearly doesn't want us to think about the cross so lightly and so one-dimensionally. Instead, on every page of this book, the death of Christ is described with the richest and Uh, most profound language and imagery. And the effects of his death are shown to have ramifications for every single area of the Christian life. It was never intended by God that we would ever move on from the cross. And if we've seen it rightly, as I know so many people here have, we surely would never want to move on from the cross. So this morning as we open God's word, we're going to, as we've already been doing in our songs, gather on a very familiar hill together, a hill called Calvary. And as we do so, let's pray that God would allow us to see that old rugged cross with fresh eyes and awestruck hearts again today. Let's pray. Father, would you open our eyes this morning as we turn to your word Lord, please help us to see the work of Jesus upon the cross again in a way that moves our hearts, Lord. Lord, that strengthens our faith. Lord, in a way that leads us to fresh worship because of all that Christ has accomplished for us. Lord, would you work amongst us now? By your Holy Spirit, we pray. For the sake of your name, amen. We're going to zoom right in. We're going to focus, as I say, on just two short verses. And these two short verses answer two vital questions. Here are the questions. What did Christ do for us on the cross? That's the first one. What did Christ do for us on the cross? And then secondly, what difference does the cross make to our lives? Now, just before we read from 1 Peter, I actually want to read just a few verses from Isaiah 53. Peter very deliberately has Isaiah 53 lurking in the background of these verses. 
And so I just want to read these, Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6, and then we'll go straight to 1 Peter 2, 24 and 25. And even as I read, you'll see some of the similarities. Isaiah 53, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then here's Peter, verse 24. Speaking of Christ, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So first question then. What did Christ do for us on the cross? This is all in verse 24. Peter packs his, his super rich answer to this first question into just the first 11 words of verse 24. But just before we, we pull it all out and unpack it, let me just give you a little bit of context. Last week, we heard and saw Peter presenting Christ's sufferings as an example to us. An example for us to follow when we find ourselves suffering for doing good. Christ suffered patiently, and so should we. He didn't speak insults or make threats when he was treated unjustly, and therefore nor should we. He entrusted himself to God who judges justly, and so too should we. Christ is, we saw, to be our example in suffering. We're to follow in his steps, Peter says. But Peter doesn't want to finish his train of thought there because he knows that Christ is not merely our example. As sinners who stand guilty before a holy God, each one of us needs far more than an example of how to suffer. Ultimately, we need a substitute who will suffer in our place. And so here in the first half of verse 24, Peter tells us exactly how it is that Christ is our substitute. In fact, he tells us three specific details about what Christ did for us on the cross. Number one, Christ gave himself as a sacrifice. Now in the sacrificial system that God gave to Old Testament Israel, sin was pictured as this burden to be placed upon the head of a sacrifice. Death was the penalty for sin, and so a sacrificial animal died in the place of the sinner. And it was the priest's job to carry out these sacrifices. Here's the thing. Every priest who ever offered up a sacrifice for sin offered up in that sacrifice the body of another They offered up a lamb or a bull or a goat or a dove to make atonement for the people's sins. But when Jesus came to offer up the one and only truly sufficient sacrifice for sin, the body he offered up 
was his own. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The he himself is there to emphasize who was sacrificed. Christ voluntarily offered up himself for us. Now, great fictional stories abound with tales of heroic self-sacrifice. But all of the sacrifices in all of the books, in all of the world combined, could not compare to the mystery and the majesty of this one perfect sacrifice. Just consider it for a moment. That 2,000 years ago, God came to earth and willingly sacrificed himself for sinful man. This is the God in whom we trust. The one who was willing to lay down his very life for us. It's no wonder that Paul writes in Galatians 2 verse 20, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What did Christ do for us on the cross? Well, firstly, he gave himself, gave himself as a sacrifice. Secondly, Peter tells us, Christ died as our sin-bearing substitute. He himself bore our sins. And those three words, bore our sins, help us to drill down even deeper into the heart of the gospel. On the cross, Christ stood charged with our sin. The sin was ours, but the charge was laid on him. And for those few terrible hours, God the Father chose to count each of our sins against his Son, as belonging to his Son. Paul, in 2 Corinthians 5, says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And Isaiah 53, verse 6, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, both Isaiah and Peter choose their words really carefully here. That, that word bore speaks of a massive, heavy weight. We must never think or imagine that just because Jesus is the Son of God, that it was a light and easy thing for him to bear our sin. It was a weight so heavy that in Romans 8 we're told that the whole creation groans and suffers under it. Spurgeon once remarked, what a weight was this. The solid earth cannot bear the freight of sin. It groans and travails in pain together until now, like a creaking chariot whose axles are unable to bear up under the stupendous weight. Yet on Jesus was the burden laid, a far weightier one than the fabled Atlas bore, and he sustained it to the tree. Jesus paid the price that we could not pay, he paid it in our stead. He was our sin-bearing substitute. Again, we can't move on from this too quickly. Let's just dwell on this for a moment. He hung in our place. Your place and mine. He took the terrible weight of all our sin and bore it in his own body on the tree. He took our sins away. Listen then to what God promises to do for 
every sinner who puts their trust in him. Psalm 103, verses 10, 10 to 12 says this. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. If we've trusted in Christ, God will never, he does not and will never again deal with us according to our sins. Because he has taken those sins once and for all and placed them on Christ, our sin bearer. Our sins are gone forever if we're in Christ. All because of what Christ did for us on the cross, dying as our sin-bearing substitute. But there's something more. There's one final detail that Peter mentions, and that's that Christ took the curse that we deserved. He took the curse that we deserved. One interesting detail in verse 24 is that Peter doesn't actually use the word cross anywhere. Instead, he talks about Jesus dying on a tree. Now, why does he do that? Is he, is he trying to soften the picture? Is he just trying to make it easier, maybe suitable for children? No. In fact, he's doing the opposite. He deliberately uses tree rather than cross to tell us something even more profound about the nature of Christ's death. Listen to Deuteronomy 21, uh, verse 22. It says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. According to Deuteronomy, according to God's own words, for a man to be executed and hung on a tree was a sign that they were cursed by God. And to the Jews, there was little difference between a wooden cross and a tree. They were, they were, the cross was virtually a synonym for tree. And therefore, Jesus suffering death by crucifixion on a cross was a sure and certain sign to them that he had died under God's curse. And so, at least in many of the Jewish leaders' minds, it proved he couldn't be the Messiah. How could the Messiah, God's anointed servant, die under the curse of God. It didn't make any sense to them. But clearly they'd not been reading Isaiah 53. Because the shocking truth revealed there is the very opposite of what they believed. What Isaiah reveals to us in that chapter is that only the one who becomes a curse for us can be the true Messiah. Only the one who becomes a curse for us can be the Christ. Christ came to rescue sinners, and only by dying under the curse of God could he pay the price of our redemption. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. On the cross then, Christ didn't only endure physical bodily death for us. That would be amazing in itself. But he also endured something far worse. He drank the cup of God's wrath. 
according to the plan that they had agreed before the foundation of the world, on the cross, the Father poured out his wrath upon his Son. The just and holy punishment that you and I deserve for sin, Christ endured in our place on that tree. He was cursed and rejected by the Father. He was forsaken. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Or as the song we sometimes sing says, he drank the bitter cup reserved for me. And I appreciate it in uh, what Ed Clowney writes here on this. He says, should anyone think lightly of his sin, and Peter could not, then to see the agony of the Son of God must call him to think again. If our death does not confront us with the wages of sin, then his death must. That such a price was paid by the Son who gave his life, by the Father who gave his Son, is the measure of the measureless love of God. So much then is contained in these 11 words. This one sentence of Peter's at the beginning of verse 24, it tells us so much about what Christ did on the cross. That he himself died as our sin-bearing substitute, enduring the wrath of God as he hung cursed upon the tree. It also tells us that with the utmost certainty that salvation is only possible through the cross. The significance of Christ's death that each and every one of us here this morning personally cannot be overstated. Leon Morris writes, to put it bluntly and plainly, if Christ is not my substitute, I still occupy the place of a condemned sinner. If my sins and my guilt are not transferred to him, if he did not take them upon himself, then surely they remain with me. If he did not deal with sins, I must face their consequences. If my penalty was not borne by him, it still hangs over me. But let me put things the other way around. What if he is your substitute this morning? What if you have responded to his free invitation to turn from sin and put your trust in him? What if you truly make that decision, perhaps for the very first time this morning? Then what? Well, then we could say without a shadow of a doubt that from this day forth, you will occupy the place of a forgiven and pardoned sinner. Your sins and guilt will have been transferred to him. He really will have taken them upon himself and they will no longer remain upon you. You will never have to face the consequences of your sin because your penalty was borne by him on the cross, leaving only immeasurable love and mercy left to hang over you for all the days left in your life. If you've never responded to him before, Jesus invites you this morning to come and receive the salvation that he accomplished in full at the cross. You can come this morning. Turn to him now and ask him 
And for those of us who've already received this great salvation, what an opportunity this is for us to reflect again on the mercy and the love of our Savior. This morning, our Savior is alive and seated at the right hand of God, and he bears in his body the scars of his love for us. He loves you and I today with the same incomprehensible love with which he loved us at Calvary. Let us love and adore him in return. Love him because he first loved us and gave himself for us at the cross. It's what Christ has done for us at the cross. It's glorious. But Peter also answers this second question. What difference does the cross make to our lives here and now, day to day? What difference does the cross make to our lives? We've, we've seen already how everything about our status and our standing before God is transformed by what Christ did on the cross. But what Peter now goes on to show us is that, it's, is that the effects of the cross don't stop there. Like the, the tendrils of a, of a vine, its effects spread outward and become woven into every aspect of our lives now as Christians. The New Testament is just chock full of examples of these life-transforming gospel tendrils. But here, Peter highlights just three in particular. Number one, we've received new life. We've received new life. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The cross doesn't just change our status before God. It also changes our relationship to sin. Christ died for sin that we might die to sin. Or to put it another way, we have not just died to sin's penalty, we've also died to its dominating power. The new life that we've received completely changes our relationship with sin. Now, is he suggesting that, we're gonna, that we will stop sinning altogether the moment we turn to Christ? Well, I think all of us who are Christians here this morning can put up our hands and say, no, not in my experience. By no means will our lives be sin-free this side of heaven. But Christ died so that we would no longer live lives that are fundamentally characterized by sin and rebellion against God. Or to put it positively, he died so that our lives would have an increasingly dominant flavor of righteousness. Like you might find in a meal where you, you put in your favorite ingredient. You want that to be the, the dominant flavor in what you're about to eat. Righteousness is to be the increasingly dominant flavor of our lives. We've been set free to live to righteousness, Peter says. Our lives have been completely turned around. And this is really good news. This change of direction, this new life, it's, it's not simply like swapping out one pair of socks for another or, or choosing between two different meal options for dinner as if the two are just equally uh, appealing uh, but different. This is the difference between slavery and freedom. The difference between once being dead and now being truly alive. The difference between living as an enemy of God and living as his child. For those of us who are already Christians here this morning, because Christ died for sin, we have died to sin's enslaving power. 
Sure, it still has the power to entice us, but it no longer has the power to enslave us. Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might live to righteousness. Uh, But what do we do with that in practice? What does that mean for us? Well, firstly, we need to arm ourselves with this way of thinking about who we are in Christ. Peter, a little later on in his letter in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, will go on to say, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, talking about his suffering particularly for us on the cross, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. He goes on, To live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Paul makes the same point in Romans 6. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So we've got to arm ourselves with this new way of thinking about who we are in Christ. And then we need to go to war with our sin. Devoting ourselves to living the new and holy lives that Peter's actually been describing since chapter 1 verse 13. But we've got got to get the order right. Every time we give our minds to this, we must follow Peter's order in verse 24. Christ's finished work is the only proper ground for this exhortation to live to righteousness. The daily call to die to sin and live to righteousness only grows properly in gospel soil. Now, on Valentine's Day, I, I'm sure like every husband here, uh, bought my wife some flowers. I bought some tulips. And I went to a proper florist and everything. And I was super proud that I'd been to the florist and not just to the supermarket. And these tulips looked beautiful on the 14th. But sadly, uprooted from their soil and replanted in a vase of water, they were utterly limp and withering by the 15th, just drooping and hanging out over the edge of the vase. If we try and plant the second part of verse 24 anywhere else than in the first part of verse 24, all our efforts to live holy lives will quickly wither and droop and just become efforts at self-atonement or people-pleasing. We're trying to work our way into God's good books. We must keep replanting the call to put off sin and put on righteousness in the life-giving soil of the cross. It's there and only there that we've received this new and glorious life. It's also there, secondly, that we have been made well. This is the the second difference that the cross makes to our lives. Look at verse 24. Right at the end there, he says, By his wounds you are healed. Now, um, usually when we think about healing, what comes to our mind is healing by something like medicine or healing by rest or even healing by prayer. In the Gospels, people were healed by Jesus' hands. But here, Peter is talking about a greater healing still that comes by Christ's wounds. So how exactly do his wounds bring about our healing? What kind of healing is Peter talking about here? Well, actually, he's already described this healing just earlier in the, in the verse, when he said that Christ died, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now he's re-emphasizing how that new life has come about. By his wounds, we have been healed. Now, Jesus' uh, physical healing miracles in the Gospels are profound and powerful. 
But they are just small echoes of the greater healing that would come through and by his wounds. In the Gospels, the the blind received their sight, uh, the deaf could hear, the lame could walk. We don't want to play down the goodness of those things or deny that God doesn't still at times physically heal in miraculous ways today. But even all of these miracles are, are small, so small, compared to the healing that was worked in each and every one of us the moment we came to Christ. By his wounds, in that moment, our most deadly disease was healed. You know, sometimes when you go for treatment at the hospital, uh, they just treat your surface-level suffering. They give you drugs for your pain or cream for your rash or a bandage for your leg. But other times, when what you've got is really serious, they dig down to treat what you've got at its very source. Maybe they cut you open even, and they, and they take out the root of your disease. And when you get out, you don't always feel immediately better. Sometimes you even feel worse. But they have made you well, and you should feel the benefits soon. Christ's wounds heal our suffering at its deepest, darkest roots. They heal us from sin and death. They heal us from separation from God. Uh, one of the most kind of uh, vivid pictures that the Bible uses to, to, as a picture of sin is that the disease of leprosy. The thing about leprosy was that not only would it eat away at you personally, but it also ate away at your relationships. You couldn't come near other people, you, uh, your family, your friends, the ones you loved. You were unclean and had to stay away. And in the same way, our sin was eating away at us, um, not just with ever-increasing corruption and condemnation, it was also eating away at our relationship with God. Our sin made us unclean so that we couldn't know Him, couldn't approach Him, couldn't enjoy a relationship with Him. But Jesus took our most deadly disease upon Himself. He died to bring us to God. By his wounds, we have been truly healed. But what does this mean still for our physical diseases and sicknesses right now? Even though we've been healed of the greatest disease, uh, I know our bodily sufferings are not insignificant. I know that some of us here especially live with chronic and debilitating diseases and illnesses every day. Does the cross do anything for our physical suffering? Well, absolutely it does. The root of all of our sickness and suffering has been severed. And like a cancer that's been removed or a weed that's been severed at the root, one day soon its leaves will wither and die. One day God has promised, Revelation 21 verse 4, that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Physical healing for all who trust in Christ's atoning death will come one day. But not yet. For now, Christians still get sick. For now, every Christian will still one day physically die unless Christ returns in the meantime. Should we pray for healing then? Absolutely. God tells us to pray for the sick. And we can know that when God's children pray for healing, God will always give one of two answers, and both of them are good. Sometimes he says, now, 
Sometimes he says, not yet, but soon. Because when Jesus returns, he will make all things new. But even while we wait for that day, Jesus' wounds transform our sickness and our suffering here and now. While they used to be just bitter reminders that our sin would ultimately lead to death and judgment, now our suffering reminds us that we have fellowship with Jesus who suffered and died and rose again. We follow in his footsteps. Because he died for sin and rose from death, we will one day physically rise to new resurrection life with him. And on that day, for sure, all our pain will be gone. Thirdly and finally, the, the, the third tendril, the third effect of what Christ has done for us is that we've returned to our shepherd. Verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The Bible often uses this picture of straying sheep to picture our lostness without Christ. We were wayward. We had chosen to go astray. Isaiah says each of us had turned to our own way. We were like sheep without a shepherd. And we were also helpless and hopeless and in the greatest danger. But now, miraculously, because of Christ's death, we, Peter says, have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. The shepherd that we had turned our backs on came after us, not to punish us, but to rescue us. The good shepherd laid down his life for his sheep. Like the shepherd in Luke 15, he came to carry us home. But what difference does that make to our lives right now? Well, just look carefully Again, at what Peter says we've returned to. Verse 25 is describing our conversion. But to what exactly do we return? Notice we haven't just returned to something abstract, to a religion or to just a place or just a new way of thinking or behaving. We've returned to a person. We've returned to God himself, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And Peter doesn't, again, just pluck these titles out of the air because they sound nice, shepherd and overseer. He wants to tell us something very specific about the, the kind of God that we've returned to. In the Old Testament, the image of God as shepherd spoke particularly of his care towards his covenant people. Just think of Psalm 23. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He is the feeder, the leader, protector, the provider of his flock. And then overseer is another term that points to his loving care. He watches over his people. He saves them and keeps them safe from harm. But it's in the cross of Christ that God has shown the ultimate expression of his shepherding care. Christ is the good shepherd. He's the chief shepherd. And through his substitutionary death, he has become the rescuer and the protector of our eternal souls. That's who we've returned to. All who are saved come under the perfect care, provision, and protection of this shepherd. And what a difference this makes to our lives. There is present comfort to be had in knowing that we live under his shepherd-like care every single day, in every situation. This was good news for the slaves that Peter was talking to earlier on in chapter 2. They might be suffering, even suffering for their faith, but they're not lost. 
They have returned to the shepherd and overseer of their souls. Peter wants them to know that Christ is with them. They are under his protection and nothing can snatch them from his hand. What a place of security and comfort that is to live. Just think for a moment about the trials in your life right now. The big ones and the small ones. Trials at work, in health, in parenting, in marriage, in grieving, in getting old, in suffering for your faith. In every trial, Christ, your shepherd, is with you. You are not lost, but always under his care. He knows your difficulties. He knows your pressures. He understands and sympathizes with our weaknesses. Remember the promise at the beginning of Peter's letter there, where Peter told us in verse, chapter 1, verse 4, that we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Well, we've seen it's there, it's ours because of the cross. But he went on in chapter 1 to assure us of something else, that verse 5, that by God's power, you right now are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And now we've seen exactly what that power is that guards us. It is none other than Christ himself the shepherd and overseer of our souls. And he has pledged himself at the cost of his own blood to protect us in the midst of every trial and to shepherd us through them right to the very end when he will lead us safely home. What a saviour we have in Jesus. What a rich salvation he has secured for us by his death. May we never lose the wonder of the cross. Let's pray.